Welcome to Tarot for the End of Times, a podcast where we utilize the tarot as a tool to navigate through epochs of deep change. My name is Sarah Cargill. I'm an artist, cultural worker, and your host throughout the duration of this series. In each episode, I'll take a look at the archetypal figures presented in the major arcana cards from the Rider-Waite-Smith tarot deck to discuss what each card has to say about navigating through cycles of change, chaos, and instability. Throughout each episode, I'll offer reflection questions and suggestions for exercises that might support you in inviting the energy and wisdom of these archetypes into your daily life and practice. If you'd like to support this podcast and the person who makes it, you can make a monthly donation through my page on anchor.fm. Your generous act of community care and reciprocity helps me to access the resources I need to make projects like this possible and sustainable. You can also support this work by sharing this podcast with your friends and loved ones, and most importantly, by tuning in. Thanks for joining me. Hi, welcome back. I'm saying that to myself too. (laughs) Welcome back, bitch. So I just moved back to Oakland. Very, very long story. I I won't really get into it here, but just know, (laughs) just know that the tower showed up in my life in a very literal way. But anyway, I love living here. It's so much easier to be black in Oakland. um, And I've been at the house, been at the house unpacking and scripting this episode. And for the third time this week, I heard somebody, presumably the same person, right? Circling the neighborhood blasting Vanessa Carlton's A Thousand Miles. (laughs) And, you know, clearly none of us are okay right now. (laughs) And that's okay. That's okay. You know, whoever came up with the euphemism tower moment should win some kind of fucking prize because, uh, fucking wow, how misleading. (laughs) Because it's never just a moment with this archetype, is it? (laughs) So, um, okay, so let's begin today's episode by shifting our language a bit. Yes, it's tower season, y'all, and demolition unfolds in phases. You want to know how I knew the tower was coming for me? The proverbial lightning before the thunder, if you will. Well, let me tell you. This one temperate February morning, I woke up and went to a spinal entrainment appointment. Don't fucking at me. I know how it sounds. Give me a break. She is a California girl. Okay. But anyway, on my way to my appointment, I received an email. And so I read it on the lift ride over as one does. And then I said to myself, huh, I guess... I guess I'm going to have to set a boundary today. So I went to my appointment, was feeling 
amazing, like aligned. I had a very clear channel that morning. She was vibing, okay, as the kids say. So I stopped at a quiet corner, took out my phone, wrote a polite but, you know, firm email and made my boundary known. And then I made my way back home to go mind my fucking business. But, you know, the moment I sent it, right, the moment I sent that email, my next immediate thought was, huh. <laughs> and it, that's the sound of my intuition. <laughs> I should, I should go do some protection work. And so I went home, ate some lunch, and decided that I was gonna, you know, go to my local magical supply store that afternoon and pick up some, some things. <laughs> so I went to the store and being familiar with the shop, I made a beeline to the candle section and took a quick browse because, you know, it had been a little while since I'd been there. But I actually ended up cutting things short there because I noticed that one of the white people who worked there was definitely following me around and kind of like, you know, like passive aggressively body checking me. You know what I mean? Like where they kind of like heard you with their fucking body. It's so irritating. So. That was really irritating, but again, I was having a good fucking day. A bitch was vibing, right? So besides that, I was actually feeling super chill. And notably, because I was having such a smooth day, guess the fuck what? My guard was down. Specifically, my guard was down in that store. And you know, I... I just didn't think that I'd have to keep my guard up in a store like that. You know what I mean? It's like, uh, it's like the magical pharmacy, right? It's where people go to take care of themselves, right? But I also know that magical supply stores can be kind of a hot spot for icky energy too. And I was starting to feel that shit. So I left. And then I get home and I reached into my pocket for my phone to check the time. And <laughs> that shit got jacked at the magic store. <laughs> mm, the sheer irony of being followed around in a store only to have my property stolen, which by the way, no one in that store claims to have seen, even though I got pickpocketed while getting protection supplies. I, it's just like, wow, you know, the very device that I used to set that boundary earlier that day, the boundary that I knew would piss off the recipient, that device was stolen. Hmm. <laughs> Touche, bitch. <laughs> hmm. Betty. <laughs> and that, that, dear listeners, was all it took for the series of devastating events to unfold in the months that followed. I won't say 
that the person who I put up the boundary with was the cause of my tower season. They just don't have that kind of power over me. But I will say that their shitty juju was the energetic straw that broke the camel's back and I was annoyed. All this to say, this episode was meant to be published in February, but the universe clearly had other plans. And apparently, hands. <laughs> the past few months have just been so brutal. Like, y'all, <laughs> clairsentience or not, okay? I got mollywalled by the universe and I am just arriving in a space where I am regulated, safe, and like physically safe, but also emotionally safe, um, and frankly, just well enough to metabolize and now share the shit that has unfolded over the past few months. It was my personal tower season, okay? Which throughout, throughout, felt very much like like trying to clear a collapsing tunnel where the light at the end just keeps moving further and further and further out. I forget when exactly I disclosed this, but it bears repeating. <laughs> this podcast is a direct product of my lived experiences, as in... As in, I don't get to talk about the archetypes until I've spent some exclusive quality one-on-one -on -one time with them. They simply won't allow it to be any other way. Especially not with a scorpionic archetype like the tower. Divination is old technology, right? And like most ancient things, the spirit of this technology requires an investment in time. We all gotta pay the toll fee to traverse the bridge between this world and the other. And so the bigger the ask, the heftier the ticket price. And yes, <laughs> asking a Scorpio to tell us about yourself is, is in fact a big ask. So, <laughs> all right. Ruled by Mars and governed by both Aries and in my opinion, Scorpio, this archetype gets straight to the point, and the point is this, you gotta pay to play. This is what it means to have skin in the game. And while I think it's wise to question dogmatic paradigms that say you have to suffer to grow, that, that suffering is the only option for a noble spiritual path or whatever, the tower reminds me, reminds us, that none of us are actually exempt from suffering. And it's what we choose to do with that suffering that matters. So I've been watching this series on Showtime called The Man Who Fell to Earth, which is the story of an extraterrestrial being who takes on human form, specifically the form of a black man in America, which adds this like backdrop of tension to the entire storyline that's like just brilliantly folded in. But anyway, he comes down to Earth to figure out a way to save his own planet. 
While on Earth, the protagonist finds out that in order to proceed with his mission, he must also learn how to become more human. In episode six, appropriately titled Changes, he attempts to share his earthly experiences with the spouse he left behind on his home planet. In this extended monologue that bookends the entire episode, he articulates a distinction he observes between human beings and his species of extraterrestrial beings, the Antheans. The episode concludes with the end of the monologue where the protagonist says the following. The Anthean God is progress, efficiency. That's what we worship. Have we ever stopped to ask to what end? Humans do. They ask that in every moment, every interaction, every sunrise, because their God is meaning. Dinner together, meaning. A father's touch, meaning. A mother's strength, meaning. At the beginning of this transmission, I asked, how is humanity beneficial to anything? Where does it fit in the universe? I now know. Find meaning in the moment, and the moment can become eternal. Humanity is quantum. Humanity is jazz. And wife, it is beautiful. Y'all better watch that show if you can, anyway. So along these lines, the tower is an archetype that uses suffering as raw material for this kind of meaning-making. Suffering offers us opportunities to experience and deepen our relationship to our own humanity and to recognize the humanity in others. Now, I'm not saying that all suffering has equal meaning and purpose, because I don't think that that's the case either. Much of the suffering in this world is utterly senseless. And much of the time, knowing the, the why won't change our relationship to that tragedy, and that's okay. But what also exists parallel to that meaning-making is a choice that keeps me tethered to my humanity. And this framework has been a critical anchor for me as I navigate and continue to metabolize just all that has occurred during my personal tower season. This archetype presents us with opportunities to make such choices. And through those decisions, we are not only reminded of our own humanity and the humanity of others, but also of our fundamental freedom to make such choices. If Martian energy is about personal power, how we find it and what we do with it, then this is how I choose to locate and activate mine. I would describe the tower as one of those archetypes that energetically snowballs. And once that gets rolling, it just picks up momentum really quickly. 
For me, it's energetically slippery, meaning that it can change shape and velocity at lightning speed. But to be fair, the tower does make an effort to warn us of this. It is, after all, the only major arcana that showcases lightning as a symbolic and visual focal point. It draws our eye down to the tower. As it's observed in nature, as well as in human folklore and mythology, lightning signals a warning. But it doesn't give us much time to prepare for and respond to that warning. It's also something that moves around quite a bit, which creates conditions that are ripe for a kind of moving target situation. Given the energetics of this archetype, it feels particularly important to engage in a conversation that is grounded, which in part explains why it took me so long to produce this episode. I needed time to metabolize what the fuck just happened. And so it feels really good to be here now. In his marvelous book, Love and Rage, The Path of Liberation Through Anger, Lama Rod Owens says the following, toxic psychic energy is energy that is unmetabolized, meaning that we are not holding space for the emotions we are experiencing. And we find ourselves reacting to the emotions in ways that are unskillful or harmful. If we don't do our work, we become work for other people. Regulating your somatic, energetic, and emotional bodies during tower season is a full-time J-O-B, okay? This archetype demands that we take responsibility for our emotional, psychological, and spiritual discord and our responses to them by doing what's in our power to hold space for our feelings in real time, if you can, (laughs) so that we can metabolize these experiences, right? This is the essence of shadow work. It's one crucial but often overlooked pathway to participating in community care and safety. You can only hold space for others to the extent and depth at which you are able to hold space for your own messiness, for your own humanity. It's not particularly helpful to consistently try to, quote, show up from a place of reactivity and being dysregulated, right? It's unsustainable and it creates this, like, martyr complex, which is not fun for anyone to have to deal with. So the tower is quick to knock over any soapbox or pedestal made from the remnants of its rubble. It's not a particularly sexy route, but taking the time to hold space for your experience, learning how to be with your suffering is nevertheless an inextricable and often overlooked step towards justice and collective liberation and community care. So for this episode, I'm going to make a concerted effort to tone down the magical realism a bit so that we can focus on engaging in a more practical conversation, which I think is sorely needed (laughs) at this time.
In many ways, I think a lot of us are initially drawn to tarot because we have, in one way or another, gone toe-to-toe with this archetype. For me, the tower card is, in many ways, the archetypal embodiment, the archetypal essence of the tarot itself. It's certainly the archetype that inspired this podcast. And so in doing my research for this episode, I was a bit surprised and, you know, a little taken aback to learn that the tower has historically been omitted from various versions of the tarot, which is kind of telling. It points to the subtle and insidious ways in which we can fall into the trap of using this tool to disengage from real life shit, from real life suffering. The tower demands our engagement and the imagery on the card is jarring because it's meant to snap us out of our complacency. When left unchallenged, conflict avoidance and spiritual bypassing will settle into your practice. This archetype reminds us that we cannot use tarot as a tool to run away from the suffering of the world. This is a tool that we use to turn towards it. My partner works in conflict transformation, and one of the things that they often say is that tension, which often culminates and expresses itself through conflict, is a necessary component to building a bridge between you and whatever or whomever it is that you're in conflict with. Borrowing from that logic, this archetype wants to teach us that tension is what steadies the bridge between your previous chapter and your new chapter. You cannot cross that bridge, that threshold, that tunnel, that portal without generative tension. So my aim for today isn't to tell you how to cross that bridge per se. I I might even say that that's that's what readings are for. But, you know, my purpose for today is to map out a few entry points to this conversation about suffering so that you can hopefully begin to build a more generative relationship to this card and by extension to your relationship with conflict and tension. Let's turn our attention towards the numerology of this card. The tower is the 16th archetype within the Major Arcana series. Perhaps it's because I worked in education for a decade, but when I think about the number 16, I think about that particular developmental phase of adolescence. This archetype, it gives us an opportunity to face what scares us and through that experience, develop and refine our sense of selfhood through the choices that we make in times of crisis. Angela Davis famously once said that radical simply means grasping things at the root. This is the archetype of radical change, and it wants you to accept that you can't undergo radical change without tending to the root rot. 
The tower wants to help you rebuild, but not on shaky, muddy, slippery ground. And so it rattles us to our core, not to fuck with us for the sake of fucking with us, but to help us locate our internal pillars, but also our internal fault lines, and to help us shake loose the rotten, mealy fruit that still hang off of our proverbial branches. There is a reason why this archetype shows up after the death card, after the temperance card, after the devil card. This is where your healing gets tested. This is where the foundations of your healing practice get tested. Tower season is a time when the very survival tools that you relied on to get by previously, you know, they start to fall apart. Our survival tools have, you know, they have a shelf life. While they may feel familiar and safe, they're not necessarily the ones that you want to keep using in perpetuity. They may, in fact, be exactly what holds you back. And so the tower pulls the rug out from under us to reveal what those go-to tools are so that we can finally decide which ones need to be retired. One of the guiding principles of emergent strategy, as outlined by Adrian Marie Brown, is that small is all, and that there is no failure, just data. Big change is the culmination of small, impactful choices that are made with diligence and care. And that is where the tower seeks to turn our attention. Now let's add the digits together. So one plus six, and we're gonna reduce that card number to seven. Now seven is a lucky number. It's a number that carries the frequency of luck and is also a number that corresponds with the chariot card. You may also recall that the chariot is the archetype that ushers in forward momentum and helps us root into our personal power to face obstacles with courage. It's helpful for me to, therefore, think about the tower as an archetype whose energetic signature is informed by the chariot. When navigating the energetics and circumstances brought on by the tower, it's important to remember that the tower isn't just an archetype, but a spirit. Let me explain. This is a concept that has roots in African diasporic spiritualities and its respective cosmologies. And while I can't, I can't for the life of me remember what the word is or where I was initially introduced to this concept, I actually think it may have been Taylor Amari Little's podcast, Tay in the Water, or possibly a Little Juju podcast by Juju Bay. I'm not sure. But in either case, there's a word to describe this spiritual phenomenon. And since I don't know the word, let me describe it to you. (laughs) So when we are, for example, embroiled in a conflict with someone, the energetics of that argument becomes an entity in and of itself. It becomes its own spirit feeding on the energy that we give to it. Similarly, Invisible systems of power and oppression like white supremacy, like misogynoir, like like capitalism, etc., etc., 
are also spirits. So when you hear folks talk about spiritual warfare, you know, depending on who you're listening to, it's not just some like ho-tempy woo-woo metaphor. It's a way to actually describe the energetic and spiritual mirroring that runs parallel to our experiences on the material plane. The turn of phrase as above, so below applies here too, meaning that the interpersonal, political, and moral battles that we engage in on the material plane are reflections of the battles that are being fought on the spiritual plane. Along those lines, we can conceptualize the struggle for collective liberation, for example, as a spirit that we feed through our actions and choices. Similarly, one of the reasons why systems of oppression like the ones I listed earlier are so stubborn to remove is because those spirits have been fed for centuries and they have been fed well. So with that said, I found it useful to engage with the energetic cocktail that is the tower as I would other spirits. It's an energetic entity that takes on the shape of catastrophic loss to teach us how to trust the process, how to move through that fire with rigor and courage, and how to surrender to the larger machinations of the universe without relinquishing personal and collective agency. The tower to me isn't good or bad. The tower is working. The tower just has a job. (laughs) So it's through this curing process that we build our capacity to face our own suffering so that we can meet the suffering of others with patience and compassion. Within the context of the tarot, the spirit of change is iterative, meaning that it shows up multiple times, finding embodiment through various archetypes. When the spirit of change confronts us as the tower, it activates our sense of urgency and sacred rage in order to give us the energy and momentum we need to navigate through tempestuous but purposeful destruction. The tower is governed by the planet Mars, which for some would indicate that the ruling zodiac sign for this archetype is our celestial warrior, Aries. So with this archetype, we're more or less dealing with Martian fire that's ignited by Uranian electricity. Well, that certainly makes a lot of sense to me because yeah, we are confronted with classic Martian energetics like urgency and confrontation. However, It's worth noting that Mars is the traditional ruler of Scorpio. And because this archetype is foundationally about transformation that uproots us and uproots systems, larger systems of power, and it also strips us of our armor, I'm inclined to assign Scorpio as the zodiacal mascot of this card. Now, Scorpio is an archetype that finds embodied expressions not just through the scorpion, but can also appear as the eagle and the phoenix. These animals represent different stages or iterations of Scorpio's transformation. And we can 
see these iterations through the tarot, starting with the Wheel of Fortune, then the Death card, then the Tower, and it appears once more at the end in the World card. With the Tower card, though, it's crucial to remember and to trust that you are being covered by the spirit of the Phoenix, whose medicine is cleansing fire and resurrection. The spirit of change, as it is expressed through the Phoenix, is here to teach us about what exactly it means to trust the process as you learn to calibrate that balance between personal agency and ultimate surrender. And so in that sense, the Tower card is a catalyst for divine balance, bringing equanimity to places where it is sorely, sorely missed. And it does so by any means necessary. I'll note here that Ifa, Lukumi, and Santeria practitioners and other Afrocentric spiritualists call this spirit of chaotic transformative change Oya. Because I'm not super well-versed in the Patakis or stories of the Orisha, I won't speak on Oya too much, but I do recommend looking into her story to supplement your learning here. Anyway, the important takeaway is that change is a multifaceted spirit with many faces, each of whom demands a different kind of engagement. The tower is, ultimately, a spirit that brings about balance by drawing our attention to all the areas where we are plagued by imbalance, particularly imbalances of power and accountability. The tower speaks through the language of suffering, and it therefore implores us to meaningfully engage with our suffering and build our capacity to hold space for the suffering of others so that we can illuminate the areas in our lives and communities where that imbalance festers. To quote the late and incomparable Thich Nhat Hanh, when you understand suffering, you become compassionate. And compassion has the kind of energy that has the power to heal. So let's talk about suffering. Throughout my personal tower season, I've been deeply engaged in literature and Dharma talks by various teachers who study suffering. I'll be sure to leave some links in the show notes, of course. But uh, one of the through lines that has connected these various teachings and reflections on suffering is the idea and practice of giving our suffering ample space to roam, as Lama Rod Owens puts it. In order for suffering to serve its sacred purpose, we need to give it space to do its thing. But there are so many things that we do in our day-to-day -day lives to truncate and suffocate our suffering. One of the most obvious ways we do this is by ignoring it. One of the ways in which we, as a collective, feed the spirit of capitalism and white supremacy is by pretending that we're okay 
when we're not okay. When we swallow our suffering to function under capitalism and white supremacy, we feed those spirits by starving our own and we give those spirits space to grow by relinquishing the space that is meant for our suffering to roam, giving that space over to them. When we do this, we, in essence, steal from ourselves to feed those voracious ghosts. I wanna talk to you a little bit about hypervigilance. Another way that we suffocate our suffering is by busying ourselves with acts that temporarily soothe our hypervigilance, but that ultimately leave us with our wheels spinning. The problem is that, you know, at a certain point, this soothing runs into the wall of its own limitations. This habit of survival, hypervigilance, typically brings on temporary relief, but eventually turns in on itself, right? It feeds the very anxiety that we are trying to metabolize and move out of our system. Now, I am someone who experiences anxiety and the lingering effects of complex trauma. I am someone who is healing from childhood parentification, emotional neglect, and other forms of trauma that have conditioned me to not rely on others for support, specifically during moments of crisis. This is something that I really struggle with. And it's, it definitely came up during my tower season, let me tell you. So <laughs> first I have to acknowledge, right, that my hypervigilance has played a central role in my survival. I'm not trying to downplay that. It was a valid and natural response to being repeatedly let down by the very people who were supposed to protect and care for me. I get that, I accept that. So my aim here isn't to pathologize my anxiety and hypervigilance, which is a response to that anxiety, but my aim is to understand how it manifests in my life and how I can take care of myself when it does. Here's the thing, when I'm not rooted in my grounding practices, I will attempt <laughs> to soothe my anxiety by using all of my energy to prepare for impending disaster, whether it be real or just possible. More often than not, this looks like, like over-preparation, over-analysis, and generally spending a great deal of time and energy ruminating about the things that I have zero control over. Well, I certainly think that there is an appropriate time and place for predictive divination, especially when you embody multiple oppressed intersections of identity. So I'm not knocking predictive divination, predictive tarot, predictive astrology whatsoever. It is a very important and useful diasporic tool. However, when hypervigilance begins to seep into my personal tarot practice, 
when I lean too heavily into predictive tarot to help me soothe all of my anxiety-driven what-ifs, I, I actually end up clouding my own judgment. And I get entangled in this cacophony of opinions and strategies that ultimately end up being more confusing than helpful. Okay, now one of the gifts that the tower will leave behind is clarity. And what I realized over the last couple of months is that I get the most out of my tarot practice when I use it as a tool to co-regulate with my spiritual team. I've been calling this element of my practice spiritual co-regulation, and I'm now realizing that it's a foundational building block for my own public practice, my community practice. It's a method and framework that allows for me to shift my inquiry from when will this suffering end to what can I do at this time to be present with and for my suffering? Listen, I don't talk about this a lot, but here I go. My primary clairs are <laughs> clairaudience or receiving messages auditorily and clairsentience or receiving messages by way of experiencing emotions related to events that haven't occurred yet. My clairvoyance is what results from the convergence of those two clairs and the bridge that brings them together is tarot. I mention this because this tower season in particular has relentlessly challenged me to sharpen my discernment between my anxiety and my knowing. And in doing so, I've learned that hypervigilance, you know, hypervigilance just ain't hitting like it used to. <laughs> Meaning, as I continue to bloom into my healing, it doesn't help me in the ways that I felt like it helped me before. While I hold compassion for the part of myself that, that had no other choice but to rely on hypervigilance and anticipating horrible events to survive, in this season of my life, hypervigilance has not saved me from impending disaster. It just hasn't. And I think that the tower is here to remind us of that too. There's no amount of knowing that can really prevent the tower from showing up in your life from time to time. It is what it is. If anything, hypervigilance will fry my nervous system and point to the areas that need more time to heal. I therefore use tarot to give my terrified inner child some space to metabolize her suffering and to give her a tool to reach out to members on my spirit team who want to support me. Tarot helps me to challenge the stories that my hypervigilance tells me and in turn helps me to create some new ones. Divination is how I access the community care that I've been denied, activating invisible networks of support that I didn't think were available to me. My practice allows me to speak directly to my inner child and to my inner teenager and say, look, here's the proof. You are looked after. 
you are cared for, you are protected and loved. This is the kind of awareness that the tower has unlocked for me. And relating to the tarot in this way as a tool for spiritual co-regulation has just been really helpful for when hypervigilance has me like <laughs> over pulling cards and overwhelming myself and just generally exacerbating my anxiety. So there's that. <laughs> a few months ago, while waiting in the thick of my despair, <laughs> I came across this Dharma talk by Brother Fatlung, who is one of the resident monks from the monastic community founded by Thich Nhat Hanh called Plum Village. Parenthetically, please know that if I ever mispronounce a name, I am so open to correction. So, you know, let me know if I'm like not saying it right. But anyway, I will link this video in the show notes. But this Dharma talk titled The Power of Cutting Off primarily focuses on the relationship between insatiable accumulation and the subsequent entrapment and suffering that soon follows when our appetite for more and more and more goes unchecked and unexamined. Though he doesn't explicitly use descriptors like capitalism during his talk, he does make a connection between power and accumulation and the ways in which they operate in tandem under the structure of a capitalist society. And in a lot of ways, I interpreted what he was saying to be about how internalized capitalism essentially kicks up the compulsion to hoard, whether that be power, resources, or even spiritual knowledge. So he begins his talk by describing how power is often attained and demonstrated through accumulation. For example, more money typically brings in more power, and that power is demonstrated through the continued accumulation of more money, right? Similarly, and I'm just paraphrasing here, he talks about how people get trapped in the hamster wheel of accumulation within a spiritual context when their appetite for, quote, spiritual enlightenment begins to drive them to consume more and more and more spiritual content, whether that be like literature or Dharma talks or workshops, what have you. And through this talk asks us to pause on that a bit. The issue here isn't that someone wants to learn, but it can become an issue when that desire to learn is fed by our attachment to consumption. So unchecked consumption not only perpetuates problematic power dynamics, which let's be clear, spiritual communities are not exempt from this, but this kind of accumulation prevents us from practicing what he calls the three virtues of spiritual empowerment, which are as follows. So the practice of compassion, wisdom, and what he calls cutting off or freedom. So within the context of one's spiritual practice, personal power, 
or spiritual empowerment isn't rooted in how much we know per se, how much knowledge and tips and tricks we can accumulate, but how willing we are to implement the practice and then release it after receiving that spiritual medicine. So how exactly does release become a pathway towards spiritual empowerment? Well, he talks about how accumulation, including the accumulation of, quote, spiritual knowledge, can ultimately lead to dogmatic thinking, which is in and of itself a trap. So first, we become attached to whatever it is that we're accumulating, right? So that's the first trap. And then we entrap ourselves further by becoming attached to the suffering that triggered this accumulation. We then get attached to the very identity that we create around our suffering and vehemently resist anything or anyone that contradicts or adds complexity to that identity or the narrative that's created around that identity. So then, in an attempt to protect that identity, we become that much more attached to our own suffering. And if it gets really messy, we then blame others for our reactivity, and then our suffering then spills over onto our unsuspecting loved ones. So I've not only experienced both ends of this, but I've painfully bore witness to the impact that this kind of attachment has, particularly on those whose public personas can't bear the weight of nuance and contradiction. But we're not here to talk about that. So this, but you know, <laughs> this is in essence what spiritual disempowerment can look like. Fear is often one of the root causes of unchecked accumulation and is the fuel that perpetuates power dynamics that make us spiritually unwell. And so when we begin to practice releasing or cutting off, what we are actually doing is prioritizing our freedom, which is, in my humble ass opinion, one of the cornerstones of spiritual wellness. The tower thus turns our attention towards a different kind of question, which is this. Are you willing to face your freedom? Brother Fatung's Dharma talk pairs really well with Lama Rod Owens's work around rage. So I'll conclude this section with a quote by Lama Rod. And he says this, If you choose freedom, you will lose things. <laughs> so the tower wants you to remember that freedom is your most precious thing and therefore implores you to let go so that you can truly feel what it means to be free and locate the site of your personal power that lives outside of the paradigm that your trauma has created. That, at least for me, has been the power of cutting off. And in my opinion, that is what the tower seeks to activate. One of the things that happened during my tower season was that I got major surgery. Now, I don't want you to worry. I'm okay now. And assuming that I continue to heal, I will be okay. But that whole experience 
really got me to think not just about suffering, but about whose suffering gets acknowledged, whose suffering matters. Judith Butler's book, Precarious Lives, deals with this very line of inquiry, namely who gets to suffer, whose suffering actually counts, and what happens when certain bodies are denied the right to suffer. I'll let you explore that text on your own time. But what I want to say here is this. Deep suffering and the performance or public display of that suffering to make it legible to the powers that be, that should not be a prerequisite to accessing care. I fucking hate. I hate how the medical industrial complex and medicalized racism and medicalized misogyny and massage noir forces so many of us to make our suffering legible to those who refuse to acknowledge our humanity. And it's exhausting. Yes, suffering sucks, but having your suffering be ignored, minimized, invisibilized, pathologized, that is terribly dehumanizing. And that is its own kind of violence. I'm not really interested in living in a world where we pretend that suffering doesn't exist. I think that suffering is just an incontrovertible facet to human existence. <laughs> and therefore, it's potent material that can guide us back to the center of our own humanity and to the humanity of others. To deny my suffering is to deny my humanity. So yeah, I'm not particularly interested in eradicating or rising above suffering per se. I am, however, interested and invested in co-creating a world where space is made for my suffering and by extension, the fullness of my humanity and the humanity of others who, who tow the lines of various intersections of identity. I believe that the tower is the force of change that creates the space. So. Where does all this talk about suffering lead us? My aim here, in partnership with the tower, is to remind myself and anyone else listening of this. Hope is a discipline. To quote the abolitionist organizer, educator, and curator, Maryam Kaba, she says, hope doesn't preclude feeling sadness or frustration or anger or any other emotion that makes total sense. Hope isn't an emotion, you know? Hope is not optimism. Hope is a discipline. We have to practice it every single day. I would like to add that discipline precedes inspiration. The tower is ultimately undergirded by this ethos and activates that discipline within us, creating the spaciousness we need to dream big in the way that the next archetype, the star, intends for you to. 
Dear listeners, you cannot spell breakthrough without uh. So let's talk about how to work with this archetype when it shows up in your spread and in your life. Ultimately, the tower creates space for what's next, the star card, flinging us across the spectrum of experience to activate our agency, condition our hearts, and heal what lives beneath the rage. When the tower appears in the upright position, one can expect upheaval and messy change that often looks like pure destruction when you're in the midst of it. When you're in that place, I want to encourage you to transmute panic into energy that can be put towards preparation. Prepare yourself in mind, in body, and in spirit for the chaos of birth. And when I say preparation, I don't mean do everything in your power to prevent the tower from falling. No, please don't do that. That is how you get hurt. I mean, prioritize your grounding practices. Mars wants you to take care of your body. So anything that can help you return to and remain rooted in your body will support you to move through the energetics of this card and make sound choices. While I acknowledge that the image of the two figures leaping out of the collapsing tower can be quite jarring, imagine what would happen if they stayed inside to keep that crumbling structure erect. They'd be crushed right? Not just under the weight of the building, but as the flying crown depicted in the card indicates, they would be crushed under the weight of their own ego. And again, gentle reminder here, martyrdom is a kind of inflated egoism. So it's really important to know when to leave, when to let go. Tower season is a wonderful time to get clear about the ways in which you get in your own way. Let me tell you something. (laughs) You will need stamina to make your way to the other side, okay? The tower builds over a series of events and it sneaks up on us when we're not paying attention to what we're doing on a day-to-day basis. The chaos often feels sudden because we are suddenly in a predicament where we can no longer ignore what's been building over time. (laughs) The energy behind its force is cumulative, meaning that there is a buildup that takes us to the highest apex of the toppling structure and the subsequent breakdown unfolds in phases. I'm not going to beat around the bush. Regulating your nervous system during tower season is, again, a full-time job. And so the strategy that I wish to share with you today is this. Please take advantage of the lulls. Go take a nap. Go eat a snack. Go take a salt bath. If you can, go outside. You know, take advantage of the lulls. The false endings are here to give you a chance to breathe and recalibrate. And that is a critical component to staying engaged in the practice, in the discipline of hope. I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge that sometimes these changes 
will be traumatic. It certainly was for me. But the thing about trauma that's important to remember is that trauma isn't just about what happens. It's also about how we process and store that event in our cerebral and somatic memory banks. And you know what? Sometimes it is sudden, right? Sometimes they are sudden events that occur. But as destructive as the tower can be, it also opens up opportunities for connection. And again, for community care. And that kind of connection is medicine. Now here's the caveat. And this is where I want you to be careful. The tower is a portal. It's an open seam in the fabric of change. And not everything that comes through that portal will want to help you. It is essential to stay grounded in your values, in who the fuck you know yourself to be foundationally, in order to cultivate a level of discernment that will protect you from predatory spirits and people as you move through your tower season. One of the reasons why I think the whole Instagram fake tarot reader scams work so well is because those motherfuckers know how to exploit people's vulnerability. So in addition to letting you know, hold up, in addition to letting you know <laughs> that I will never DM you for a reading, I will never DM you for a reading, I will never ever DM you for a reading or conduct readings in your DMs, okay? In addition to that, <laughs> I'd like to share a few red flags with tarot readers that I hope will support you in discerning who will and will likely not help you, okay? So first, the basics, right? If a reader DMs you from an account that you recognize, and if it's an account that you already follow, click on that motherfucker. Click on their profile and see if it has that little follow back button. If you already follow that account, then that button shouldn't be there, right? That's a duplicate page. Second, <laughs> if they ask you to send them money and you notice that their PayPal or Venmo or Cash App name does not match the name of the person on that profile, maybe don't send them money. I mean, okay, caveat here, sure. There may be moments when someone's profile name does not match their PayPal or Venmo account because those sites often force people to, you know, use their dead names. That is a whole nother topic, but, you know, just please use your discernment around that. Now, here are some more subtle red flags. Personally, I, I don't trust readers who don't make sense. Like... <laughs> Like if they have some content online, right? And they're doing a collective reading or something and they're just like spewing out word salads that are super hard to follow and make no fucking sense. Chances are they're not actually, they're not actually reading anything or, or they haven't really built up enough of their own filters to know which voices are worth amplifying or listening to and which aren't. I also don't trust readers who have a personal agenda. Here's an example. When I was a baby queer, 
I once went to a neighborhood reader after a breakup to get some emotional and spiritual support. And luckily for me, my homie and roommate at the time came along for moral support, which I definitely needed. Now, the reading took a really funny turn when the reader started the reader started pushing heterosexuality onto me, and she kept telling me to like buy a certain spiritual bath while insisting that the reason why we broke up was because I'm supposed to end up with a man. <laughs> Newsflash, that wasn't the reason. <laughs> anyway, shout out to my Cancerian homie who said the shit that my Libra ass was too polite to say. If you're listening, thank you for getting me the fuck out of there. <laughs> Imagine, imagine what kind of mess I would have gotten myself into if I took that weird ass spiritual bath by that that lady who wanted me to be straight. Like, that's so weird. I'm not trying to be straight. (laughs) Lastly, along those lines, it's a red flag when readers aren't transparent about their ethics and their values. To me, that's a red flag. It tells me that they either haven't taken the time to truly think about it, or they just don't think it's important. Either way, red flag. Spirit and energy workers who hide their ethical stance will most likely have other things to hide too. So mm, get the fuck out of there, babe. Okay, now let's get back on track. Because here's the thing about the tower. The tower in the upright position will teach you a thing or two about acceptance. Acceptance is, you know, to be clear, acceptance is not consent. You can accept that something has occurred without consenting to what has occurred. We often exacerbate our own suffering by refusing to accept what is, by getting really stuck in what shouldn't have happened and all the ways you think you could have or should have prevented it from happening. So for me, that looked like pouring all of my energy into protest rather than tending to the hurt itself because, you know, that would require vulnerability on my end. I put a great deal of time and energy into fueling my righteous indignation. So that would sound something like, this is so fucked up. This shouldn't be happening like this. Fuck that motherfucker who didn't do anything. I didn't do anything to deserve this shit. And yes, all of that is true. But staying in that place of righteous indignation, that was, that was my choice. <laughs> and so in many ways, acceptance for me is actually compassion turned inward. It's a way for me to say, yep, this happened, and nope, you could not have prevented it by being more careful, observant, faster, smarter, nicer, what the fuck ever, right? Or perhaps, perhaps you could have, but in either case, that's not what matters here. What actually matters here at this moment is that you remember that you are still worthy of care and that it is 
it's my responsibility to show up for myself from that caring space. It took a lot of, you know, therapy, body work, prayer, meditation, nourishment, and community support for me to finally have the wherewithal to be able to give my suffering the space it needed. And the space that my suffering needed was called acceptance. Acceptance for me is really just about giving myself compassionate space. Now, here's the difference. Here's the difference between spirally rumination and giving your suffering space. The difference between the two is presence. When I ruminate, I am stuck somewhere in the past or somewhere in the future. <laughs> but when I practice acceptance, that brings me to the present where I can bear witness to my experience and the shifts in my emotional landscape in real time. Again, Mars is keyed into the wisdom of the body. So as a triple air sign who often lives in my head, <laughs> <laughs> it has been really helpful for me to practice acceptance by dedicating some time to actually feeling my feelings, to actually locate where my grief lives in my body and how rage moves through my limbs and under my skin and what anxiety does to the quality of my breath and to welcome those sensations as an active reminder of what needs my attention, what needs some care, some counter movement, and some protection. The tower card doesn't back us into tight corners for its own sake. It does so to activate our agency by bringing our attention to the areas where we still have choices. The tower wants you to remember how to summon your freedom. Finally, the tower in the upright position wants you to get in right relationship with your sacred rage, to get comfortable saying that shit with your whole chest. Mm -hmm. I grew up in an environment where I didn't have the right to be angry or express anger, which ultimately led to shame and embarrassment when I could not control or contain the bigness of my feelings, the bigness of my rage, especially externalized rage. This is, of course, compounded by the fact that Black people's rage and the rage of women and femmes are often pathologized and even criminalized, right? So it took me a long time to get to a place where I was comfortable with expressing and responding to my rage in real time. The tower thus simultaneously tests our healing while dredging up the parts of us that need more love, need more time, need more space. This archetype wants us to remember that the point of healing isn't to become the most ubiquitously palatable version of yourself, but to develop a practice that offers the space and grace that you need to love on the parts of yourself that you've been taught to punish 
or diminish or silence. If the tower appears in the reverse, I urge you to pay attention to where and how you resist change. Depending on the context that the rest of the reading provides, it can certainly indicate the end or near end of any given tower moment or season. It can also indicate that you may have dodged something terrible by the skin of your teeth. But more often than not, this card in the reverse is, for me, primarily about personal transformation, pointing to the ways in which we get in our own way by delaying the inevitable and attempting to control conditions that are outside of the scope of what we can control. What do you do by habit of survival to delay the inevitable? In what ways might those delays exacerbate undesirable circumstances? How might those delays be hurting you or perhaps other people? What do you need to face in order to make peace with it? Whatever that looks like for you, this card in the reverse wants you to just rip that band-aid off, okay? Just rip that shit off. <laughs> Personal experience has shown me that the tower in reverse also indicate moments when we, when we inappropriately take on other people's karma by trying to deliver a lesson that isn't our business to deliver. <laughs> now, I've cut a few reality checks in my life because yes, sometimes you will be tapped. Sometimes it is your turn to pick up the tab, okay? But that doesn't need to be your go-to. And if it is, it's really important to examine that. Sometimes we might be trying to teach someone a lesson as a way to bypass our own hurt, as a way to you know, find that kind of internal reconciliation by teaching someone a lesson. Being the, the teacher, the role model, whatever, that feels good. It kind of like ratchets you up the hierarchy of moral superiority, right? But that also distances us from our vulnerability and from the message that our hurt is trying so hard to deliver. Putting ourselves in that role might temporarily soothe our egos, yeah, but we inevitably end up taking on that other person's karmic lot. When we make someone else's karma our business, we do both ourselves and that other person a great disservice. When you try to teach someone a lesson, you might end up strengthening the very ties that need to be severed by becoming attached to the outcome of that proverbial lesson plan. Our healing then becomes contingent upon the rate at which that other person's wounds heal. And interceding in this way, ironically, prevents that other person who harmed you from doing the necessary work that it takes to reckon with the full gravity of their own acts of harm. Why? <laughs> because they're gonna be really busy defending themselves and crafting the perfect story that makes you the ultimate asshole. And they're gonna dig their heels into that narrative to protect themselves from their own vulnerability. 
This is, of course, different from participating in an accountability process where both you and the other party are clear about what is and is not yours to hold and address, right? That, that's different. But in any case, the tower in reverse beckons you to examine the wounded parts of yourself that want to see others suffer in the ways that you did, or perhaps to examine the wounded parts of yourself that would prefer to teach a lesson than to learn one. To paraphrase the late Thich Nhat Hanh once more, when you don't take care of your suffering, you become a victim to it. But when you begin to see that people who have caused you harm are also victims of their own suffering, well, damn, it becomes a little bit easier to forgive. This is not a hard and fast rule. I'm hard pressed to believe that every situation calls for forgiveness. There's like, you know, there's levels to this shit, right? No one's asking you to waste your time appealing to the humanity of others when they clearly demonstrate an inability to recognize yours. However, for me, <laughs> forgiveness is also kind of like acceptance. It's not about, it's not consent. Rather, it is a kind of understanding that seeks to center someone's humanity without having it compete with the validity of your own experience. It's also a tool and a practice that I access to reinforce the emotional, physical, and energetic boundaries I need to move forward without being weighed down by someone else's karmic garbage. This is where the healing is. And that is what I, you know, <laughs> however aspirationally, that is what I commit to. Community has become kind of a buzzword that's lost some of its gravitas over the last few years, especially with the rise of neoliberal corporatization of organizing work. But when the last bricks of my tower season fell, it expanded my awareness of how densely interconnected our lives and hearts are with one another. When the tower falls, we are given the opportunity to locate, prune, and water the root systems that quietly twist and turn under the concrete, under the structures that once seemed immovable, and to use that as a foundational map for the future. And so I thank you, dear listeners, for being part of this root system. Thank you for gently checking in on me without pushing my boundaries. I want you to know that your messages to me are lovingly received. Thank you for continuing to support this work monetarily, even through periods of prolonged silence. I want you to know that you've been supporting my learning and my practice in more ways than, more ways than you know. In a digital age where content is constant and gratification is more often achieved with immediacy, I know that this is a pretty big deal. So thank you for respecting the fact that I'm a long form bitch. <laughs> 
and for allowing me to move at a pace that feels authentic to me. Know that your support has and continues to go a long way, especially during seasons of focused learning and integration. I will leave a few resources in the show notes, but if you'd like to connect with me one-on-one for a reading, you can do so through my website at snakeskintarot.com. Nowhere else, and especially not in your DMs. (laughs) Also, if you want to talk to me and others who listen to this podcast about this episode, I invite you to come and find me on Instagram at snakeskin.tarot and share this work with others. In the meantime... In the meantime, take good care of yourself and of each other. We'll talk soon. Bye for now.